Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Tricky Kid Radio. I'm your host, Roy Turner. Finally joining me is my lifelong uh, best friend of over almost 30 years is Chris Todd. Chris Todd is in the building, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, welcome to Tricky Kid Radio. Thank you, Roy. It, it's a pleasure. I, I'm very excited, and I just want to thank you for, for having me join the show. I've been, it's been a long time coming. I've been so, so excited. We've been talking about doing an episode, period, about anything. Right. Uh, and what we're going to be talking about is that that's our 30 year magical friendship. When we met when we were about 12 years old, the soundtrack of that is Motley Crue. Uh, we were both huge crew fanatics. Uh, we bonded over it. We, we right. met because of it. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of things have happened, uh, with Motley Crue as of late, them doing their final tour. You know, they did, you know, obviously they did a movie. We're going to get into all of that. Uh, so basically what we want to do is give you a people's history. That's right. I think, uh, you know, watching the farewell film uh, kind of put this together. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that was a time where we both kind of agreed that that yeah. was the closure and that, you know, hey, why don't we go back? Why don't, why don't we go to where it all started? That's you right. Know? Uh, you know, as the the credits were rolling on the farewell tour, you know, we're thinking like, you know, this is the, this is the last chapter, but let's go back to, to yes. the very first chapter. That's right. Exactly. And that's what's kind of inspired us to do this. Um, is for me, like I said, you know, and we're going to get into all the, uh, we're actually going to do a two parter here. Um, much like if you've heard of all the print stuff that we did, uh, we did it like in four parts. What we're going to do is, is we're going to do this one. We're just going to cover, like I said, the 80s, like Chris said, we're going to go all the way back to the very, very beginning. But what, what we're hoping to achieve here is just to be a people's history. We're going to tell the history of Motley Crue, but we're going to tell our history. We're going to tell what this has meant to us, why this band has meant so much, why it lasted so long, and why it meant to so many people. And But like you said, it didn't really quite hit me. I mean, we went to the farewell tours. We yeah, saw it we several did. times. and But whenever you and I were sitting there watching the movie, if you guys know what we're talking about is that uh, Motley wrapped up a two-year farewell tour uh, on New Year's Eve uh, in Los Angeles, where it all began, and they recorded that final show for a movie called Motley Crue: The End that showed for one night on July on June fourteenth, and then of course you and I went uh, to see that. But whenever we were sitting there, what were you what were you thinking? Right. Well, you know, what I was thinking was that, you know, it's funny because we we caught that farewell tour. We we went to that twice. Yeah. Uh, and I think you had actually caught that. I caught show. it a, a third time. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Well, I think what it was was, you know, yes, that was uh, in my mind's eye. This this is probably the last time I'll see them play live. But for whatever reason, it, it wasn't that closure. And it wasn't until we actually watched, sat down I agree. in the film and watched the end where, as the credits rolled, where it really finally hit me. I agree with that. And I think it's because, you know, Motley Crue was just in front of our faces for real. Right. Like five minutes ago. So this can't be the end. I, I'm not, you know, I just saw Tommy and Mick and Vince <laughs> uh, do their thing. So that's what I'm saying. It wasn't until I, you had some space for it and you were watching it, you know, and. But we're going to get into all the uh, about the movie in part two. But today, it's all about one thing, and that one thing is too fast for love. That's right. That's right. Uh, so what we're going to do is is that, Chris, I'm going to let you start. Okay. So Motley's very very first album is an album called Too Fast for Love, and for you and I, it has been the the soundtrack to 30 years of friendship. Mm -hmm. It has been the soundtrack to individual parts of our lives. Uh, 
I couldn't think of this band or this album without thinking about you. And again, in our friendship and all the great moments we've had that, that this album has framed. And what we want to do is we want to take you through some of our favorite parts of it. When you think of, of Too Fast for Love, like what, what is the like a knee-jerk reaction? What do you think of? Well, what I think of is I think of, for me personally, it was my personal loss of innocence. Uh, you know, being, even though I was 10 uh, when I was first exposed to this album, this was an album what really meant to me was, okay, you know, I, I grew up listening to music. I was exposed to music. Um, but this was the album that really spoke to me. The yeah. first album musically, you know, I had had albums. I had Kiss albums. Sure. You know, I had Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath. But this was the album that really spoke to me and said, hey, you know, th- this is something special. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what, what we were talking about earlier was that it was the first one where this was yours. Right. You know, I had albums before. This well, actually, this was actually my first my first album that was actually that I actually bought that was mine that I'm, I'm excited to talk about here in a second. But I, uh, uh, for me, it was like this was the first. This was my band. Okay, right. Kiss was cool and whatever my sister was into and, and my point. parents were into. But no, but this is me. This band represented me absolutely. And I think that we all had that. You know, there's always you know you had that older cousin that was an influence. Sure, and, sure. You know, again, and kind of very similar to your situation. You know, being age ten, um, I remember, and I wasn't quite ten yet, but my cousin, it was his tenth birthday. Yeah. And you know, um, he, you know, you know, we're at the table. He has, he's looking through his gifts, and one of his gifts was Motley Crue's "Too Fast for Love." On, on what format? Um, I believe it was cassette. On cassette. Wow. Wow. Um, but. He put that in, and it, it, it just it was an awakening. Yeah. It was like, this is the greatest music I've ever heard. Because it jumps right out of the speakers. I don't care what kind of music you're into. When you hear the opening riff to Livewire, yes. or especially the opening riff to the title track, Too Fast for Love, it literally leaps at you. It does. It, it, it's, it grips you. It does. It, with its aggressive, raw tone, it, it just... There's something that it grabs, it takes a hold of you. And, and you know, it, being that age and, you know, being, you know, having this older cousin that, you know, he had already right. had a guitar. Right, right. You know, he wore the docking, you know, T-shirt. <laughs> you know, uh, this th- this album said it all. And even, you know, when you look at the album cover, you know, I know that we're, you know, you can't take a look at it right Well, they'll now. be able to see it on the website. Okay, so, great, yeah. great. But it, it just... It's a statement. Yeah. It is a statement of youth and just empowered freedom. Absolutely. And that's what I love too. And this is what uh, a lot of people, if you're listening to this, you probably are already a fan of the show or you, you know, know who Motley is, but if you're not the album cover and you'll see it on the website here, or you can just Google Motley Crew too fast for love is a Vince Neil basically from the waist down and it's showcasing uh, his crotch basically in full 19 early eighties, regalia and you know talking about about you think about this this isn't a testament to that i my parents had bad parenting for allowing me to patronize such but it's more of a like you said like an innocence thing okay uh right in front of us right now and you'll be able to see this on the website is my actual personal copy of too fast for love bought at age 10 now i've moved 30 times in the, in the last 32 years i've moved 40 times this album if if this house, this building were to, to like <laughs> be set on fire, this is what I would reach for. Right. Okay, 
not only because, and also because of what it means. Um, I was talking about this a little bit earlier. This is going to make it sound, kind of date me a little bit here, but uh, back in the day, whenever you bought records, like I was saying to Tony earlier, that vinyl actually had a return policy where you had 30 days to return the record. Uh, and, you know, and so the albums had the, the warranty date actually on, on it. So as you can see on mine right here, it says the 30-day limited warranty expires on March 13th, 1984. And, my, and I, my birthday is in March. So sometime, so I guess February 13th, 1984, a few weeks before my birthday, I'd gotten some money from like, like a grandmother or, right. or whatever or in advance. And I went into Discount Records in Little Rock, Arkansas, by the way, in 1984 <laughs> in purposes. And here's something I, I wanted to tell you. In 1984... My first exposure of Motley Crue, like like a lot of people, was shot at the devil. Okay, yes. and, we'll and get it's funny because yes, like me, you know, I I, I had heard Shadow of the Devil on the radio, yeah, uh, before I even was exposed to the first album. And that's kind of what I and we'll get into Shadow of the Devil here in a second. But I, I wanted to mention was that for me, I had heard Looks to Kill, I'd heard Too Fast for Love. Mm -hmm. Motley Crue was my favorite band. Okay, did that speak to me as as uh, like some kind of like hoodlum person? No, I can show you a picture of me being dropped off for soccer practice as the nicest, innocent ten year old kid. But when I was waiting to be picked up, I had like remember the giant boom boxes, right. the, the, the kind of like that was your kind of swagger. <laughs> I had a giant boom box, and I was listening to Motley Crue because they were more than a band; they were my identity. Right? Do you understand? And of course you do. You know. Uh, but here, here's the funny thing about buying this album was that I went into this record store and in my mind, Motley Crue only had one album because this is before Theater of Pain. Mm -hmm. So Motley Crue only had one album. They, the Shot of the Devil. Thing, right. Okay. So when, and I may have only had only had been into a record store a couple of times and nothing like this. Like my purchases were probably at like Walmart or Kmart. This was an actual record store, you know? So Walmart might carry the latest, but they're not going to carry, you know, any back catalog stuff. So for me, walking into this giant record store, I, you know, I went over and I saw this Motley Crue thing that I didn't ever see before. I thought this was the new album. You see what I'm saying? I, right. didn't, I didn't know that this came. I was like, oh, my God, Motley has a new album. It's called Too Fast for Love. And then I started, you know, looking at it going, going right. and then the guy at the store was like, no, dude. This is their first album. And I even argued with him because there was no way that he could know more about <laughs> Motley than me, you know, right. as a 10-year-old. And uh, and I left there with my brand new purchase. Had to, uh, And I actually had a hand-me-down record player. And I put this album on. And like you said, when I heard the first things of the first things of Livewire, it was like losing your, your virginity. I was, yeah. uh, I was a different person. Yeah, once you hear that first riff and, uh, you know, it, it, it's a statement. It, it 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 sets a template for for this whole uh, journey. You yeah, know? it really is. But here's what I, here's what we were talking about earlier, and I wanted to mention was you know it, again this isn't some like a couple of old guys reminiscing about how great shit was in the '80s. This <laughs> is an actual thing that's true. There will never be an album like this, and you hear that a lot in your life. But I want to explain to people what that actually means. Okay. So I'm not somebody that's, you know, old and who rejects technology and devices and that kind of shit.
but you don't think about when people kind of go, man, there'll never be another record like that. You don't realize that there will never be another album like this. Even Motley Crue today couldn't make an That's album right. like this. And the reason why is because here's where technology advances us, and here's where technology hinders us. To know the history of Motley Crue and to know the history of this album is to know that they had about a couple thousand dollars. They went into some flea bag. I'm sure it's probably written on the back here somewhere. I forget the name of it. Was it uh, West City Record uh, Recording? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, uh, yeah, it was at RTB. Okay, which okay. is this little. You know, if you've if you've been to LA and everything else, it's not there anymore. But it's further up down uh, the Sunset Strip, like in no man's land. They went into this flea bag recording studio and literally had six days to record and mix and master this album based upon their budget. Because right. if you remember, it was originally released on a, a small imprint called Leather, Leather Records. Right. That, right. It was just a name that Nicky gave so that he could have it to whenever he was calling up record labels to, to actually mm-hmm. get it done. And so, and this doesn't sound that much different. Basically, it's the same record. No, it, there's really not much difference. And I think it was maybe Mick Mars uh, had a... A brother-in-law had a friend yeah. that wanted to give her to the story. music business. I think that's, that's kind of right. how it all started, was put together. Uh, but, yeah, there's really not much difference. But I tell you what, the re-recording with Electro, what they did with it. It just mastered, those, it, mastered yeah, it, right. And, and, but, but the little masterings that they did, it, it did wonders. It, it's know? genius. But his, it but his guitar, but see, I like, like, I didn't know they were uh, imperfections at the time. But I've I've learned that those imperfections are actually my favorite part. You've heard that's what makes it. You heard me talk about this. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was saying yeah, it's the imperfections uh, that that really just make it so special. Yeah, which makes it one of my which makes it my favorite Motley Crue album. Yeah, and one of my favorite records of all time. I mean, seriously, without uh, this isn't revisionist. If I had like a Mount Rushmore of my favorite albums of, of, of all genres across music. Too Fast for Love would be right next to Jefferson. You know, <laughs> you Absolutely know what I mean? Agree. Yep. But you've heard me talk about this a lot. We're going to play you some music here so you guys can just sort of just hearing. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this before, but we might be able to put it to, to a better context for you. You've heard me talk about this for 30 years, and this is also one of the imperfections. Is that uh, my favorite song on this album is a song called Merry Go Round. And for two reasons. One, from the imperfection standpoint, there's a part of, of the song where his guitar and amp completely starts to distort. And he does this little, Mick does this little awesome guitar refrain that I'll, I'm going to play for you in a little bit. Uh, and I love it because it really captures the magic and the rawness like we talked about. Yes. And when you hear people talk about this record, you hear raw this, raw that. But what they don't talk about is back to the technology aspect was that if somebody wants to make a record now, they can do so at their leisure mm-hmm. on their laptop or on their phones or, you know what I'm saying? That that hunger and that urgency is not there. I don't care how poor you are or how rich you are. If It's like Saul Williams says. It's like, you, you may be rich, but you can't buy shit to not get hungry. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. You're looking at four guys that were basically teenagers. Yeah. Think about this. Uh, uh, so, Tommy's seventeen on this. That would make 
uh, Vince 19 on this. That would make Nikki 20 on this. And Mick, I think he was already 50, I think. On this. But, uh, I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry. He had some road experience by the time. But, but again, that was the recipe. That was the perfect recipe. Perfect. If you didn't have Mick come in, Mick's experience that, you know, with his prior bands and with uh, the architecture that w- with Nikki's input, I mean, it, it was a perfect recipe. Uh, perfect. I could agree more because I agree, I agree with you that, that even though Nikki had the vision aesthetically yes. and, and the songs and writing, is it, it took an, a, he like, Mick's about 10 years older. It took that elder statesman and his sound that just shaped it that, for me, it, you know, think, think about this album with a different guitar player. You couldn't imagine it. No. And that's what makes not only the magic of this album, but the magic of this band. And we're going to get into about, you know, identity and solidarity and like kind of a gang mentality. Because that's that's what Motley, Motley Crue was four people. They were four, four individuals. There was no like Vince and that other guy. and <laughs> Or how like, when some people kind of think of certain bands that are... You know, it's like Aerosmith is Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, uh, and like Joe Perry's buddy in high school, and then like the other guy. And, and, and no offense to those guys, because those guys right. are all great. But uh, that's what you know. And I want I want to get in that because Motley Crue, you could say it was a brand, or but it was that was the appeal was that you were this was a gang, and being a fan of Motley Crue, you were a member of that gang. That's a good good point. It, it very well said. You know, it you had four individuals, yeah, and you knew it's like you knew them so well. And of course, we can also go into the reasoning for that. You know, you at that age, you know, you had the you had your fanzines, you had circus, That's right. uh, hit parade magazine. Um, I, I, I there, I'm sure there's a couple more that that I can't uh, recall, but. Um, you know, we were. I couldn't wait to go to the store to pick up the the next circus edition of Circus Magazine. So I had wall to wall pictures of the of these these guys. Yeah. You know, interviews. We we knew these guys. Yeah. And if you realize that Chris, when you and I met in, in 1987, they were all we talked about. I mean, they were. I mean, I mean, you know, we didn't have obviously, you know. Uh, the, the responsibilities, you know, at, at a young age. So, so it allowed us to do so, yes. but I'm just saying that that, that was the thing was they were a gang. That's why it was so hard to see them be so distant. And we'll get into that in part two. Uh, but Motley Crue was a gang. And I don't mean like in a, in a negative term, I mean like, right. uh, you know, solidarity, or I guess what they call now a squad. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. my squad goal in 1983 was to be, a member of Motley Crue. That was my squad goal. You know, absolutely. Hashtag like Nikki Vince, you know, Mick and Tom. Man. That's right. You know, it, it was youth. It was, you know, it, it was the, the testosterone that you could see emitting, uh, you know, it's this very wolf pack kind of, uh, a feeling yeah. that, that when you, uh, listen to the music and you saw them and you saw them playing together, uh, like you said, they were a gang, and you felt like you were a part of it. Absolutely. So, and and so now I want to I want to give these people some sounds here. So I'm going to let you um, play uh, the albums in its, in its entirety on your own, which we totally implore you to do so. We're going to play you a couple little snippets here and there, some of our favorite parts. And I, like I said, I really want I'm going to end with "Merry to Go Round and Round," but I wanted to start with I'm going to play you a song uh, that. We talked about this before, whatever it was, you know, the opening riff 
of the title track, Too Fast for Love, okay? It starts, it just jumps at you. It's so powerful, it grips you. But the original version, and they were so smart to change this, yeah. actually has this kind of intro that sounds like Live and Let Die. And so somebody somewhere was like, leave that off. Right. And look at what a completely different... Uh, you know, I, I don't know, like, I'm sure it probably still would have had the same impact, but it's fun to look back on. I want to talk about that. There's two tracks that were left off of it, uh, Stick to Your Guns uh, and Toast to Town. And there's actually one more, believe it or not, uh, that they did a, there's a punk band. You know, Nikki's always been kind of dialed into that, like, early, mid-70s, like, kind of New York Dolls punk yes. thing. It's a band called The Raspberries. And do you know this? They're actually they actually recorded a Raspberries cover called Tonight, and that was during the recording. They only had they only had that much time, and they did the cover, and it and it didn't happen. But uh, we got to play you that opening riff. We got to play you uh, the, the the guitar refrain from from uh, Merry Go Round Round. So let's Absolutely. get to some music here, and we're gonna start with. So that was the opening riff to the opening song, Live Wire, uh, or Too Fast for Love. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, what I'd like to say right here after listening to this is, you know, and again, I, I, it still happens to me when I hear this is, you know, that that evolutionary remnant from the past, you know, when, when your hairs stick up on, you know, on, on your arms, you know, it, it, it gets me every time. Um, what I can say is that it's a statement. Yeah. It, it, you know, this is a statement song, a statement riff, and they may not have known it at the time. Sure, sure. I, they know they had something good because it was a single. It was, it, there, was only, there was only one single, basically, from the album. Yeah. They made one video, so they knew it was good, and also, obviously they, you know, it opens the album. Right, right. Uh, but I just, you know, again, to in my mind, when I think about how just, how just raw and aggressive and just, you know, it just, it's, it gets you pumped up. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons why this was that, like we spoke of earlier, right, right. Uh, why this album just grips you, uh, the, the aggressiveness, you know, and the, the, when you listen to the lyrics, you know, it, it just, it, it just speaks to you, you know, especially when you're, 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 you know, you're this young kid and you get gripped with this brutal riff and just, you know, Take my fist, break down walls. You know, I yeah. took the night. I mean, I, you I, better I turn go, me loose. Better set me free. I, I, I mean, that that right there. That's what it's. You know, that's what you want. Yes. You know, when when you're that age, when you're trying yes. to when you're trying to find your own uh, identity, 
Uh, you want to be free. But it's where innocence and rebellion meet. Yes. If, if there is a fault line, think about think about that. If there is a actual fault line of a delineated moment you can point to in your life, you could point to turning the key on an engine and hearing it roar for the first time. You see what I'm saying? Or when you right. got your driver's license, or all the things you point to. Few people in few bands make albums and make single riffs that encompass that. Okay? Now, that might sound like an exaggeration, but it's not. Because, again, you mentioned innocence earlier and also kind of the end of it. But this is where they exist at the exact same time because it, it was your innocence that allowed it to enter. Do you understand? And so when it says, take my fist and break down walls, everyone is kind of angry and rebellious mm-hmm. and kind of wants to be free. And he calls himself a live wire. Like, imagine when I bought this album at age 10, okay? Right. And I came home and I put that platter on, and the very first song, the very first thing I heard was that. And I heard those words, and I'm looking at this aesthetic. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm a different person. I'm a member of this gang now. This, this wasn't my parents. This wasn't my older brother, uh, uncle, whatever. This is me. This is me. This That's is who a- I am. You said very well said. And so now we're going to move on to, uh, I wanted to play you, speaking of the song, uh, one of the greatest riffs ever of Too Fast for Love. But I am going to play you the intro to the original just for fun, just to tell you, you know, the history of the album to kind of show you how, what a different thing it would have been had it not been for, um, you know, that, that change here. So give us, give me one second here to put that on. When
Okay, and again, of course, that was the opening riff to the title track, Too Fast for Love. Has there ever been a more kick-ass riff than that? I, I don't believe so. And, and here's what I mean. Okay, all right. Think about the phases you go through in your life. Okay, you know, by the end of the 80s, and we'll get to this later, you know, we were all about the thrash and Metallica, and in many ways, uh, you know, still are. But, you know, and then, of course, the 90s turn, uh, and, you know, of course, the whole Nirvana thing and everything else. But let me be honest, and let me be clear. When I'm in the mood to listen to something badass, okay, for nostalgic reasons, for just whatever reasons that motivates me, there are songs that you like, and then there are songs that empower you. And then there are songs that empowered you at one time, but no longer have that. Later on, because the song is, remains the same, but you have changed. But there are a few things that hit you so hard because they're so good that stand up. That riff empowers me right then, just now, as it did the first time I heard it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, it still hits me. Um, it still holds up. Um uh, and again, you know, growing up listening to blues, listening to Led Zeppelin, Jeff Beck, um, which big influence on Beck, yeah, as well. you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, the Rolling Stones, um, you you hear that influence in these riffs, yeah. you 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 hear the the, the blues influence, um, but at the same time, it's so aggressive, it's 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 almost punk, yeah, it's very punk, you know, it, it's it's everything. Mick Mars, what he does with his his style, you know, that's what that's what I love so much about these riffs is taking. And you mentioned that these songs mean something to you and they empower you. Uh, well, Mick Mars playing, you know, it it just it reminds me of the blues. But at the same yeah. time, I have that aggressive uh, feeling that this is. This is a punk song, but, right. but no, it's not, you know? Well, we should also should tell the listeners, uh, I know you're going you're gonna to be humble about this, but uh, but they also should know that you are a guitar player. We have been in bands together for uh, off and on for years yeah. and as young people. And so, uh, you know, you're able to able to also to dissect it in a way that I'm not able to, that a lot of people aren't because you are able to see it from a, a musical perspective. Because, you know, I know you're going to be humble about this, but you know that you're a natural guitar player. <laughs> Um, to my listeners out there, my, my, my friend Chris here is one of those guys that can hear something and then go home and play it. Doesn't, doesn't that aggravate you? It's always, I've always been, I, I, I love art, but I can't trace my hand. You know right, what I mean? Right. And like, you were always been that guy where you could hear something and go, Oh yeah. We're not, you know, and I'm just like, <laughs> ah, so, yeah, you know, in, in Mick Mars, you know, he, he was one of those guitar players where I wanted to, I wanted to be Mick Mars. You know? Right. Uh, but talk about that though. Okay. Cause like every kid is going to have an album. That's going to be theirs. That they're going to identify with. Uh, and it doesn't make it the greatest thing in the world. You see what I'm saying? But there's something here that seems to transcend that. You see what I'm, I'm getting at from now until the rest of time. And you know, and even before that, every kid's going to have like, like right now, Somebody out there right now, they're too fast for love is a Justin Bieber album. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's cool. Okay. Right. But there's something here that transcends, meaning that Bieber or whoever is the thing now, I, I really, I can't predict it. And I hope mm -hmm. they live long and prosper, but I can't <laughs> see that 
still remaining empowering 30 years later the way that this is. Talk a little bit about that. Right. Well, you know, and I think you can agree that, you know, in, in there's there's the, the people that they just can't understand. They don't understand the, the whole uh, metal, heavy metal culture. Um, yeah. You know, it, it just once, you know, it, it it gets once you're you, you become a metalhead, you know people don't understand. Well, you know they, they don't understand the the allure of of heavy well because it's not music. casual, right? You know heavy metal fans aren't casual. They 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 love it. They love it forever, and, and that and that's that further you know uh, justifies what you stated earlier that you know the the staying power. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that these riffs have staying power. And and one thing that really uh, that I want to mention, and you you know mention having that experience playing guitar is uh, Mick Mars. He his tuning on this album it's a full step down. Okay. Which explain it, what that means to people that don't really know. What that is is your uh, a guitar normally tuned is going to be in an E. Okay. Um, a little lighter. Okay. On Too Fast for Love, you know what he does. This is so boss. This is why this is so aggressive and raw. He drops his tuning down to a full step before it was popular. Oh, my God. Before Metallica learned, hey, I'm going to sound heavier and crunchier if I drop a full step. Okay. Make Mars did it on Too Fast for Love. And so these, these, these riffs, these songs, don't, they would not sound as heavy as they do if they weren't, if they weren't dropped down a full step. On their tuning. That is a perfect segue into what I mentioned earlier because where I want to end the Too Fast for Love portion because I, I really could do you know three episodes on it. I would want I, I would want to do it a one full episode per song, right? <laughs> but that would be a perfect segue into Merry Go Round because the two things that reflect why it's so important was because again there are certain things that you choose and there are certain things that choose you for whatever reason that song chose me. Okay. There might be other songs like too fast for love or live wire, but for whatever reason, that song on one hand is my favorite Motley song and my favorite part of the Motley story, because whatever reason it just frames you and I, it frames mm -hmm. you and I, it frames our friendship. It frames, uh, what, you know, everything that we, you and I have meant to each other over the years and what this band has meant to us. Perfectly. And you've heard me say this many times over the years, but specifically there's one little guitar frame refrain where his guitar distorts. And it again it shows kind of the warts in all of the album. Okay. But right. it, but then on the second hand, it speaks to what you're saying about being the step down. Is it it is still one of the heaviest things I've ever heard in my entire life. And people think heavy, you know, they think slayer, but what we're talking about how we're defining heavy is we're Talk, defining it as fearlessness. We're defining it as, like you said, uh, tuning a step down, having muscle and power, not being engineered or processed. Right. Uh, not not the, the musical prowess of, you know, like Randy Rhodes. Right. Um, we're not talking about that, you know. Right. Uh, it, you that's, know? that's a good point. That's a good point. Right. So I'm going to play you uh, Merry-Go-Round. Specifically, I'm going to play you this the part of the song uh, that just has got this amazing little thing and, and somehow in about a eight second four bar thing we've lived uh 30 years of of motley crew this is this is a one part of a song called merry-go-round again we both implore you to go get this album get Absolutely. it get get it on vinyl if you can uh but get it some way somehow so check this out 
All right, so that was Merry Go Round. Uh, you know, and I'm glad that we played that because speaking earlier about you know how heavy it sounds, yeah, and that 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 solo and what it means to you. Yeah, you, you can every time you hear it, you know, it reminds you of you know a time in our past. You yes, know, it brings us back to those. These are these are our wonder years. Yes, yes, you know, and this song is a. It's a culmination. It's a it's a perfect recipe of everybody. I know that we really we've taken a lot of time, uh, you know, talking about Mick Mars and his guitar playing. I could, you know, again, I could talk about his slide guitar. You know, before Jack White made slide guitar, that's right. You know, kick ass. Mick Mars was doing it on piece of your action. Yeah, if you listen to that slide solo. It's amazing, and nobody your would, jaw will drop. Yeah, and nobody would ever go. You know, you you don't hear people. You don't hear people like you know, like Jack White's disrespected guy. You know, people would go. You know, who were some of your influences? If you were to go, man, I love McMars on that Too Fast for Love record. People would be like, what? Exactly, like, and that's unfair. People are not going to remember. Hey, McMars, listen to his slide work. Yeah, it's amazing. But I, you know, again, I, I just one thing that we haven't touched on is in going to the song. It's a perfect recipe. Everybody did their part here. Yeah, we didn't talk about Tommy Lee, and that's what we got to because you, you, the guitar player. I was the drummer of the band. Like, right? Everybody, it's a, that this song, Mary Around is a perfect balance. But, you know, again, we can go on about Vince Neil. Everybody know Vince Neil on this album. You know, his earlier days, he was an amazing singer. Yeah, and you know. This right here is a showcase for Vince. Uh, but I'm going to tell you right now, you know, again, I want to emphasize that the unsung heroes is Mick Mars and Tommy Lee. Totally. Totally. Has there ever, to be honest, without gushing and, and revisionist, has there ever been a cooler drum sound on any heavy rock record than his than his drumming on this? No. I, you're right. It has a He's tone a of its teenager. Own. He was a teenager. You hear this, this album, I mean, that's Tommy Lee. Uh, the snare work, uh, yeah. you know, the, the how aggressive and tight he is, you know. It, the it's, accent, the power is what it is. Yes. When you hear, like, the little, like, double bass paradiddles, and we can get into all the technical aspect, but that's that's not even relevant. The The point is, is that this was a teenager, and I don't mean, like, 19. I think he was 17 during the recording. We're talking, right. like, still in – because he was still in high school if he was still going to school, like, that's you know. Right. Uh, but when you hear it. I always hear. I mean, people love that cowbell part, obviously on Live Wire, and, and the greatest you, use of cowbell by far. Ever, <laughs> ever. Sorry, Will Ferrell. Right. Uh, Tommy had it in '81, right? Um, or Blue Oyster Cult, whatever the hell. Uh, but my point is this: is it when you hear? Because you know, you know. Again, like I said, I was never the drummer that you were as a guitar player. You know, you always excelled, but I know that for me, like that's like. Okay, you were already playing guitar. You know, our friend Steve, of course, wanted to play bass. For me, it was all about the, the drumming, and and because not only was that the the last instrument kind of left because I couldn't sing, you know, but it was like for me when I hear "Too Fast for Love" in in other records too, and we're about to get into his, it sounds fucking powerful. Like he's picking a fight with the drum kit. You know what I mean? Like when you hear that, when you hear like like I said, all the little syncopations, it just sounds. Just it sounds like it looks like if you <laughs> look at Tommy Lee in '81 as a teenager, he is he is having a straight razor fight in a in a freezer with with the, with the drums with the, you know with that drum set. It's got that same 
you know, it does. Yeah, very, it, it has that power. It does, and, and again, I, I think that that's really power is, is what you have here. In you know, and again, it, it and this was this came out in 1981, right? Which was right. released in 1981, and I don't know what I I, I think maybe. Venom's Welcome to Hell came out that same year. Yeah, yeah. Black like, Metal. You know, yeah. Maybe Iron Maiden's Killers came out the same year. Right. Um, but I, I put this album up there. Yeah, you know, I, I, too. you know, I give you know, when it comes to raw, aggressive, heavy, I put this up with any of those heavier albums that came out that year. Yeah. Like, this is up there. This is this 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 deserves to be there with those albums. And those records had big budgets. Yes. Had months and months of of Dissection and time, you know, you know, to give the record its due thing. This is, the, I mean, I really couldn't, uh, subs- you know, prescribe the formula to any four other people. I wouldn't say, hey, you know what you really need to do? You don't need your Garage Band or or whatever software you're using, or hey, you don't need a million dollars in a year to make a record. You know, hey, the four of you go into this flea bag place with a thousand bucks and make this record. I don't know if I could prescribe that to many other people. That's what I'm trying to say was was that it took these four individuals it that did. were hungry and and had that hunger and had that fire and had that passion at that time. That's why there will never be another record like Too Fast for Love. Not even Motley Crue never made another record like Too Fast for Love. They made some kick-ass records. They were about they were about to get into right. uh, the uh, probably for most people the record that that. Uh, expose people probably to the first time to them, which is, of course, is the landmark album, Shout at the Devil. Now, before we get into that, we got to keep the lights on here. So uh, we want to talk about some of uh, some of the proud sponsors of, of Tricky Kid Radio. Uh, one of the very, very first we want to talk about is I know everybody has to, you know, wait, they need, you know, their house cleaned and that sort of thing. I want to tell you about a company called In the Nick of Grime. I mean, just based upon, like, the name alone, okay, doesn't that, like, they kind of deserve the props there. But in all seriousness, if you need, I mean, Christy, I mean, like, how do you guys, how do you guys keep your house in shape? I mean, there's ever times you ever feel like you want to maybe, like, hire, like, oh, my God, I wish we could hire somebody to. to, Absolutely. You know what I mean? You've got kids and everything else. So in the nick of grime, what you're going to want to do is. Uh, you can Google it. You can go on Facebook, uh, do whatever. Uh, but you want to speak to Ashley Stone. Her number is, if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, call 214-893-4491 and speak with Ashley Stone because in the nick of grime, she has all your house cleaning needs and she can get you all set up. She's cool. She has reasonable rates. Um, she'll go pretty far and pretty wide. It helps if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, in the surrounding areas. But again, call Ashley Stone at 214-893-4491 for all your house cleaning needs in the nick of grime. Uh, Next, we also have, um, for rock fans out there, fans of Motley Crue, uh, Metallica, all kinds of stuff, whatever. If you've ever seen uh, those awesome, like, like glassware where you've got like, you know, like the pus head drawing and the, the, the white zombie, you know, shot glasses. And if you, especially if you're a band and you're thinking, man, that's some great merch. How do, how do I get that? Like, is that something that's out of my reach? I'm here to tell you that it's not contact drink with the living dead. Go to drink with the living dead.com. Uh, they do it's hand etched in the United States. It's top, top, top quality work. 
Uh, and it, also, you can peruse their stuff. If you're a fan of this stuff, you could actually buy some very high-end, limited-edition stuff that's that's awesome, or you can have custom stuff made. Uh, speak with Mike Wilson, uh, and... And you can email them there. He's the uh, he's the uh, the sales marketing. Um, he also calls himself the, the hostage negotiator. So uh, anyway, we go to the drinkwithalivingdead.com uh, and check them out. I also want you to get involved with company. Let's see here. Let's find it here. Uh, called Drip. They're an art collective that does a lot of great stuff. They're uh, they're part of a collective that's part of the Cleanup Dallas crew. Um, and there's a woman named Valerie Gonzalez. And so if you go on to getdrip.com, they can help you get involved and, uh, and lots of great visionary. If you're an artist, you want to get a part of, be a part of something. And last but not least, as you know, I made my professional wrestling color commentating debut a few months ago. Well, we're about to take it up a notch. July 31st, the old school hustle back where you and I met and grew up together and back in Crowley, Texas. IHWE is hosting Old School Hustle. It's going to be a great, great time. A lot of old school wrestlers and, and newer ones. Um, the, the legendary Jim Cornette's going to be joining us. Uh, Jerry Lynn's going to be there. He's going to be doing a two-hour Q&A beforehand. It's, tickets start at $10, very affordable. It's uh, entertainment for the entire family. We do have an all-ages show. I'm going to be there doing color commentary. Uh, so come out, meet me. Um, there'll be an intermission where you can meet me and all the wrestlers uh, and bring the whole family. We're going to have a great time. Again, it's July 31st, Old School Hustle at the Crowley Civic Center. Uh, you can find out more at trickykid.com, uh, www.trickky-kid.com. Obviously, go on Twitter. Uh, our handle is Tricky Kid and the number two. Chris, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Or you do Twitter? Or what, what do you? What do you do? I'm not. What, but I what, will. You will. Okay. Where, where, anything you want? I to dip pl- my toes in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything you want to plug? Do you have any 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 social media profiles you want to platforms you want to mention or? Uh, no. Or how, you know what? We'll put your brother over, man. Uh, Corey Martin. Corey Martin Real, Realty Company. Right. Uh, yes, uh, you could uh, look up my brother, uh, Corey Martin, uh, on Facebook, and uh, if you need to sell your home, if you're interested in a home, uh, look him up. Yeah, good. Yeah, It's under Corey Martin Realty, right? Okay. Right. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, and also go to IHWE, uh, look us up also on Facebook, uh, type in Tricky Kid Radio. Uh, the best way to do this also is to subscribe. Go to iTunes, just type in Tricky Kid Radio. Click the subscribe button. It's free. You'll get episodes like this each and every single week. It'll show up automatically into your iTunes folder and or on your iPhone, and you can listen to it in the car, anywhere you want to go. So let's get back to the show here, okay? So now, okay, so for a lot of people, and I wanted to introduce this this way, uh, for a lot of people, let me see here, um, for a lot of people, and same thing goes for us. Your introduction to Motley Crue, the first time that you saw Motley Crue, wasn't too fast for love. It was Shout at the Devil. That's correct? Right. That's right. Um, I think maybe I was nine, uh, living in, uh, actually, I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time. Um, but again, you know, this was, you got to look, understand that this was the age of MTV. Yes, right. Um, so you had. You, you had know, the visual. Like most people, you were first exposed to Motley Crue. You had the singles. 
uh, both on the radio and you had the videos. But it, it was different because previous to that, people were exposed to music where they heard the music on the radio. The first, and then you saw them later. The first time I saw and heard Motley, or the first time I heard Motley Crue, I saw Motley Crue. You see what I'm saying? Right. Like, it was like I heard it on the radio and was like, oh, what's this? It was like the first time I ever saw anything about Motley Crue was the Looks to Kill video. Right? Right. And I think I, I, I recall hearing it on the radio. Uh, you know, my parents were always, you know, they always had the radio on. And uh, I, I believe my first, from what I can remember, it was actually on the radio. But, you know, again, uh, going to school and you start seeing yeah. the t-shirts. Yes. yes. That's right. That's right. You start seeing the merchandise. And, you know, again, coming with the, the genius, uh, the architect, Nikki Six. The image, the the marketing, right, right. Um, you know, the three the three brunettes and the one blonde. You know what I mean? That's that's right. Uh, so that was you. You had not only did you have the music, but you had the visual appeal. Well, okay. So let's talk about that for a second because you know how they were actually introduced even before that was that a lot of people. You know, if you don't know about this history, you should really look this up. Was that um, in nineteen? I guess this is eighty. I guess it had to be 83. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The Us Festival uh, was this giant festival they had. Uh, I mean, this is like this is like Woodstock. Uh, I won't go into too much of the history. I'll let you guys Google it. But uh, Steve Wozniak and of course the people from Apple had a, you know had, they had more money you know than, than than God even then. And what had happened was was that they had done a, a big festival in 82 that was kind of more like a pop thing. Okay, like like the new wave thing. I think like the Knack played and everything else and. So by 1983, this groundswell of heavy rock. Um, we talked about 81 earlier. If you, you know, we'd be remiss not to mention 1980, where like you know, Motorhead's Ace of Spades, uh, Rush's Moving Pictures, Judas Priest's British Steel, yes. um, you know, uh, uh, Van Halen's Women and Children First, all these you know these big albums. So by 1983. It was literally Woodstock at the Glen Helen National Park in San Bernardino, California. There was something like 400,000 people. When you see those aerial shots of Woodstock, something like that went down. And at the time, Van Halen uh, got paid the largest salary ever to play. And I am, you know, the biggest, one of the world's biggest Van Halen fans. And it is one of the sloppiest performances ever. Uh, but earlier that day, because they, they had heavy metal day, like they had they had punk day, uh, like the Clash play and everything else. But on heavy metal day, a young four young guys from Southern California right down the road uh, named Motley Crue and show you where they were at that time. They went on early, like early in the day. And one of the first right. live performances ever of Shout at the Devil or anything. And it was the, at the time, easily the biggest high-profile thing they'd ever done. Uh, not because there were so many people there, but they had never done anything beyond playing into a couple thousand people at the, at the Civic Center. But with this look and this power and this momentum, and, and they did this very ill-fated tour of Canada. If you know your Motley Crue history, you'll know about the, uh, uh, the Too Fast for Love Canadian uh, complete cluster F thing that happened with that. But, um, so imagine Motley Crue going on in the middle of the day because, you know, Shadow the Devil kind of lends itself more to uh, uh, 
uh, kind of lends itself to darkness, you know, like a dark image. Right. So, and you're seeing people who had never heard Shout at the Devil, and by the end of the song, they've got the chorus, and they're they're fist pumping. You see what I'm saying? They do. And, you know, and that, and again, this goes back to uh, what, I, what I spoke of about the, but the visual appeal. That's what I'm saying, right, Because right. You can't you, separate it from right. this. And if you go back to that footage, they were so nervous. Yeah. And really, they really sounded horrible. Yeah, yeah. Because, and again, they were young and they were, I mean, you know, look how many people they're played in front of. Right. Uh, you know, musically, they, they were just, they, they were sloppy. Yeah. But you know what? And but like you said, at the end of that song, you know, when they came out, it's the visual appeal. That's right. That's right. It didn't matter how sloppy they were, or you know how you know how they sounded. People just looked at them and they 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 fell in love with the image. Well, okay. The thing about this, okay. So again, so the very first time I I saw or heard anything was the looks to kill video. Now we mentioned this earlier because when we were watching it earlier, was that an argument could be, of course, being made. About uh, uh, we, we're invoking the power right now. Suddenly, right. suddenly it's storming <laughs> outside, and like we're. Uh, uh, I don't know if you're going to be uh, uh, getting any any additional work done today. Uh, anyway, uh, was you know you mentioned this earlier, but like there is a misogynistic aspect, but it, it is seemed more again about the innocence. Like it, you know, when you watch the Too Fast for Love video. It seemed this post-apocalyptic thing. We weren't as well versed with Road, the movie Road Warrior, Mad right. Max, which it's clearly influenced by in, in hindsight. Yes, and I'm not trying to excuse any sort of misogyny because in the video they're like corralling Corral women and, <laughs> and uh, you know and forging them in fire. Uh, but I, I think it was more along the lines of how many people can we piss off? Because this is during the age of satanic panic. I mean, this is during the age yes. where Judas Priest was on trial and Ozzy was getting sued for suicide solution. And, you know, this was an, an, an introduction. So instead of shying away from that, here was a band, like you said, thanks to Nikki Six's uh, kind of, vi- you know, kind of, vi- right. you know, trajectory of how can we turn the knob up on that? Right. Now, when people watch that, is funny as it is and as cartoonish as it looks, it's still very striking. It is. It, it is. What you did know? you think? Because you just saw the Looks to Kill video just now, okay? What seeing that for the first time in so many years with this perspective, what what was going through your mind? Well, it kind of just brought me back uh, when I, you know, to that age when I first saw that video. Uh, you know, and again, I, we touched on it uh, while we were watching it. Is that you know, if, if if a band was to to make that video today, you know, people it, would laugh. It's it's a laughing stock. Yeah, it'll know? never happen again. Um, but if you you know, again, if you go back to when they made that, it, it's striking. It, it's it's powerful. It, you know, it's testosterone. It, it's sexuality. It is, and, and also and, androgyny as well, because they look like girls. <laughs> That is true, um, and and again, but that just goes back to uh, why you know not only you know Shadow Devil, but Too Fast for Love is why it, it, it would speak to you as a young boy because right. you know you're dealing with really two themes here. You're dealing with testosterone fights, street fighting, and you're dealing with sexuality. Totally, absolutely, but also at the same time, okay. You know, maybe if I was 35 in 1983, it would have seemed silly to me too. 
okay? But I wasn't. Neither were you. Right. We were 10, okay? <laughs> and uh, we're actually 9 in 83. Um, and so that's what I, what I mean is like, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Some people would say, when I say that video like that would never be made again because if it was made now, it would look campy and silly and embarrassing and they would be laughed at and could be considered career suicide. Mm-hmm. Is that a good thing? Well, on one side, maybe it is. But on the other hand, I, I do miss that innocence. And I'm not trying to revert us back to the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, but I do miss, and I'm not saying that, like, you you know, now now we, we must hold those responsible uh, for, um, for you know, their, their misogyny. But I don't think that that was the, I don't, it doesn't feel reckless to me. It doesn't feel careless. Um, and so let me see here. All right, so uh, talking about the videos for Shout Out the Devil, uh, we've uh, talk about how, how like you know, about looks to kill, but then it seemed like there was a bit of a sequel with Too Young to Fall in Love. Yes, yes. Uh, that was a bit of yes, that was the sequel. Uh, it sounded like it didn't, you know? Right. Um, I th- the first thing that stands out to me is I remember, you know. Right around the time, even when that album came out, was the fascination that America had with uh, Asian cinema. Yeah, yeah. uh, Martial arts, kung fu film. Yeah. And that's really what, to me, it was like an homage, an ode to to the Asian kung fu film, uh, to to me. Sure, sure. And that's why it worked so well. It was so appealing. Okay, but, but think about how, you know, we've had this running thing about this kind of this gang mentality. Okay. Right. You know, yes. this isn't this isn't a Skid Row video where you see Sebastian Bach for like ninety eight percent of it, and then like you see like the drummer go to the bathroom. Like this is like all four guys, and they're now yeah. walking. The seven Samurai. Yes, they're walking. Coming thank to, you. Putting coming together. They're walking the streets as a gang, and you they look like badasses, and you think they can kick ass, and then in the Too Young to Fall video, you see them actually kick ass <laughs> and they're walking down the uh, the Rapanji district in, in Tokyo like a street walking gang dressed like Mad Max and standing there united there was I wanted to be a part of that gang it, yes you know the, and that's the thing coming back to you know this will you you felt like you were a part of this gang you knew them yeah you know like these are the guys I know uh, that write Excellent songs that appeal to me uh, that are, you know, here I am. I'm seeing them uh, in a video kicking ass. Yeah. You know, (laughs) fighting ninjas. Yeah. You know, they were like magical creatures. (laughs) But even funnier about it is that, again, how serious your innocence will allow you to take things at a young age. Like the part of the thing where it seems silly now, but where like, the guy turns his head and there's those two black bars on his face. And then that girl removes her fan and she's got the two black, like as a 10 year old, I was like, Oh my God. Right. Because I think that this story is getting intense, you know? And and I think that may have been something because I think maybe Tommy Lee, that was like a part of his makeup. He had at one point, right. It was like the two marks on his face, like, you know, in his stage makeup. So, that was what was really so cool about was, it. Was yeah, because it was like oh, oh. it was like a reveal. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're in they're in Motley, right? Like they're in they're like they they have been converted to this, 
and isn't that a great metaphor? It sounds like, like you know, we're kind of like, you know, I'm not going to wax poetic about the too young to fall in love video, but I'm, but it was kind of like, that was the identity. You see what I'm saying? Right. Like them doing that. And I, that was what was so weird because again, you cannot separate the visual from it. And that's what empowered me to have kind of a rebellious spirit. I was a nerd and a nice kid and, you know, did well in school and played sports and all that nice things. So I, I wasn't out to be, you know, I, I didn't really want to, you know, cause trouble, but man, when I was sitting outside and I had my my tooth my uh, shout at the devil like tape in and people were walking by, I felt like you know I felt strong. I felt sh- I felt strength from it. So that right. goes way deeper than just the way the guitar sound or or you know or or you know you can't separate. And then the album cover to shout at the devil is a pentagram. Right. This is during the height the height of of, of satanic panic. That's right. And so, and you're talking about two guys, you know, you and I, growing up in the 80s, having long hair, growing up in a small town like Crowley, Texas, we couldn't even walk the school without adults yelling out at their car at us just because we had long hair. That's right. You know, again, you, you had, you know, we were Reaganomics, you had... Uh uh, you had Tipper Gore, you know, speaking on, you know, the violence and the Satanism and music, you know, playing. Yeah. You could play uh, vinyl albums backwards. And yeah. You could hear madness. Yeah. So, so this was in the height of that. And, and people took it seriously. I mean, it seems silly now, like how when you go back and go, man, like Alice Cooper, like you guys were afraid of this guy, like <laughs> right. the guy that. The guy, the guy in the golf visa video, like he was playing golf in a visa video uh, commercial, like, like this. It sounds silly, but that's why I want to mention it here. Is because it was people were again. That's the innocence, the innocence that breeds the rebellion. Okay, right. when you exchange experience for perspective, you live a lifetime in the Too Fast for Love album. You live a lifetime in the Shout at the Devil album. That's the power of the band. That's the that's the legacy and the longevity of the band. Because few people make albums where you experience a lifetime in in thirty minutes. That's exactly right. You know, uh, going back, you know, to get into the album cover, and, and and again with the 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 satanic panic. You know, I think when you had the adults look at this album and you know the title album, it, it's it's not shout with the devil as Vince Neil would say. Shout out! That didn't matter. All they heard was devil, and they saw a pentagram, and you guys are devil worshippers, right? You know. But this is the genius of this title in this album cover because this is telling you that we're we're shouting at the devil. Yeah, we're we're badass. Yeah, we're more we we're more kick ass than the devil. Than the devil, we're we're shouting at the devil. Yeah. Yeah, we what, don't fear him. Yeah. What was more kick-ass than that? Yeah. These guys are – they're shouting at the devil. Yeah. And that was so strong and so appealing. Yeah. You know, it, it, it just – it was so genius. It, once again, the architecture of, of Nikki Six and the image and uh, the, the package and the presentation that they put together. And, and like you said, Roy, you know, uh, this album, we, we, it was an era. We, we lived this album. It had a personality all to itself. Totally. And even separate from, again, like I said, when we got introduced to Too Young, uh, Too Fast for Love, Mm -hmm. after the fact, 
Do you know what I mean? Yes. And I love this. And since we, we want to play a track from each record is that this album ends with a song where the song itself is called danger. <laughs> and it's the perp- it's the per- perfect, I guess you would say, what is like the, like the last of something like the, the soliloquy, a, a dirge or whatever. Yes. Um, to end an album with its, with a, started with a song called shout the devil and ends with a song called danger. He goes, you're in danger when the boys are around. This is Hollywood, Hollywood. which completely shapes and gives you a, I mean, it actually, they they made a a song that sounds like how Hollywood feels. Who can do that? Exactly. And that was one of the pieces to uh, the allure of the whole L.A. scene. That is, you know, the, the huge migration in the 80s of, you know, Young bands, you know, like us, we were in a band in a small town. Right, right. Well, you know, let's go to Hollywood. Let's go to L.A. That's right. But, but could we have could we have been like, I don't know, let's say Leonard Skinner or something. Could we have written a song that sounded like yes. what the oppression of living in Crowley? And, you know, we were good kids playing, bas- playing baseball in the backyard and collecting comic books. But to the locals, we were... We were uh, we were danger. We were you know no pun intended. We were a threat. Right. Um, if you re- recall, you and I were you know we were in a band together and we we won the school talent show. There was a protest to have these young kids who had worked hard to perform well mm-hmm. because we all wore black. There wasn't anything on our shirts if you recall, right? You know, That's because right. people were afraid. It's a fear response. Okay, so for so where you can't separate this. This was the smart thing to take that. The the anticipation of that fear response and dwell in it right. and indulge it. So I want to play you uh, this song "Danger" that ends the album. To shout out the devil from Motley Crue. <laughs>
Okay, so that ends the Shout at the Devil uh, segment. Now, talk about the visual and, you know, that you can't separate from the sound. You want to talk about taking it up a notch and also having the juggernaut of MTV behind them. Because whereas maybe MTV might have been a little scared to play something called Shout at the Devil where a bunch of guys were had torches and, and um, uh, what do you call it, and, you know, pentagrams and that, that sort of imagery, okay? By the time they came out with their next album, uh, 1985's Theater of Pain, uh, it's important because, see, now, like, I came into I came into Shout at the Devil, you know, maybe six months to a year after it had come out, and then I discovered, and between that and Theater of Pain, I discovered Too Fast for Love. By the time Theater of Pain came out, I was now the guy at the store on the day I, I was all in. The Theater of Pain, I knew the day it was coming out. I was there with my friend Tommy. Shout out to my friend Tommy Woodward. Uh, and uh, and so on the day that it came out, I was there. I was I was yep. already, I was all in. Okay? And that's funny because I was as well. See, I, I remember my mother taking me to Sound Warehouse right. to pick up Theater of Pain day one. Yes, and I want to give a shout out to to you know my, my buddy Casey Bassett, and we can kind of go into that. I want you to. I this kind of goes into those years uh, with you know, and this was before I met you. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, Casey Bassett was was like my best friend uh, prior to meeting you, and uh, you know, again, we kind of kind of very similar. Met at school. Um, he, I think, he wore an Iron Maiden shirt. Right. In, the, the Brotherhood was recognizable. Right, right. right. But, but again, he finding out he was just a huge Motley Crue fan as well. So this kind of kind of goes into that with with those years uh, spending uh, with 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 my friend Casey Bassett. Well, and I love that because there's few people in life that I can say that I've known longer than you, <laughs> and 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 he's probably the only guy you could say that you know longer than me. And right. of course, obviously, our buddy Steve uh, Ainsworth, whose birthday is today. Happy birthday, That's right. Steve. Happy Ains- birthday, Steve. This is Steve Ainsworth, uh, who is kicking it in Puerto Vallarta right now. So he's, uh, huh. if he saw what the uh, what the weather was like outside. Uh, anyway, uh, but that reason why that's important because I wanted them to understand that, like now, talk about belonging to. Like we're not trying to figure Motley out anymore. <laughs> now we're all in theater right. of pain, and. So think about all the things we're talking about with the imagery and the the, the, the toughness of the yes. sound. How, look, so what was your reaction when Theater of Pain came <laughs> out? And on the back, they all, I mean, it was a radical, and, you know, keep in mind, I didn't have the, the privilege or the, the, the luxury of, of, of ever hearing of the New York Dolls or, or right. knowing what they were going after. It didn't really matter to me, but I know a lot of people, it, it upset them that they looked so opposite from Shadow of the Devil. What, what, what do you remember about that time? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I remember going, you know, and I was just so excited, you know, I, I was going to go pick up Theater Pain. And I, I believe I had probably already been exposed to seeing the the, the, the new look uh, through, you know, you get Circus Magazine. Okay, okay. Uh, kind of, you know, hyping it before sure. it came out. I, I don't recall, but I do recall being so excited and picking up the album and taking it home. And again, pulling out the record and seeing the pictures. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, what is this? Um you know, I, really? yeah, it was it, a little it was bit of a shock. Really, okay. It okay. was it was completely different. Now, obviously, you know, these are this is your gang. This is yeah. your family. Yeah. Um, I'm so part of this gang. I'm they represent me. That's right. 
And so, okay, so <laughs> this is how we're rolling, guys. We are wearing pearls and pink lipstick, pink lipstick, <laughs> yeah. feathers, yeah, uh, t- tight, skinny pants. You know, um, and yeah. again, with you know, we're we're you know, kids from the suburbs of Texas. We had no idea who the New York Dolls were at the time and all that. And right. so, you know, for me, I was so blindly loyal to it that you know, this is a revisionist, but it was almost kind of seamless, like 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 you're saying, like. It felt seamless. It was only until people were making fun of it and taking exception to it, the older kids were, where it actually occurred to me that there was something different. I I, got to be honest with you. I was so blindly loyal and so completely obsessed. And, you know, like when you're you're that way, that age, you don't want there to be anything wrong. These guys were, were infallible. You know what I'm saying? There wasn't anything wrong with them. And so when I got the theater of pain record, it didn't bother me that the, that the, the major hit was a ballad. It didn't bother me that they were, I guess it's, they looked more like girls. It really seemed seamless. And, and it wasn't until I met older people that were like, yeah, I used to like Motley before they turned into, you know, they look like, and I was like, oh, it, it never occurred to me. People have a problem, yeah. but that, that's just my own. You're right. It was that, that, that blind loyalty, that loyalty right? It did, it did, you know, again, it did kind of shock me a little bit. I'm like, huh. But, uh, you know, again, you're not, hey, this is how we're going to roll. Yeah. And and again, it wasn't really, you know, we're we're fans of music. It's not, it wasn't really about the, it was, it wasn't about the image. It was really about the music. Right. So we look past that. But you can't, you also can't separate it. And because, and I think something else also that made it, because it would have been different, I think, if like it had sunk them. Like if suddenly, like, you know, they had the momentum from Shout the Devil. And Mm -hmm. because of this radical, uh, change kind of like what what uh, what Metallica did when they were away for like five years and they came back with this kind of weird album and they had changed right. their look and all that from from ninety one to ninety six with the with the from the black album to load. I think that if it had sunk them, like it, like if if people had that reaction to it, like what the f is this? Mm-hmm. But it didn't. Yeah. It put them into the stratosphere. It did and, skyrocket. And the reason what. Put and like I said, you and I are all about the music. But what put that album over the top was the videos. The videos, okay, absolutely. And so suddenly, whereas maybe the girls were into it a little bit, the rebellious girls were into "Shout at the Devil." Suddenly, every girl you knew was into it. And I'm not trying to be gender specific and saying girls can only relate to ballads and they don't like heavy music, nothing like that. But in 1985, there wasn't like like the home sweet home. I mean, that song has been covered by country artists since then, <laughs> to tell you its crossover appeal. Right. Okay, so now you had a ballad, so that's going to create a much larger net for everybody. You have a which we didn't know at the time was a cover of "Smoking in the Boys' Room." Right. But the two accompanying videos. You and I have been friends for 30 years, and we talk about Motley for 30 years. When we talk about Motley, what is besides Too Fast for Love, what is the thing that we talk about? We always quote the Smoking in the Boys Room video. That's right. Where he goes, Jimmy, bend Bend over. (laughs) (laughs) And and that has nothing to do with music. That's all about the visual. It is. Uh, You know, and again, we we talked about this uh, earlier, um, you know, we in previous conversations, uh, 
And again, the MTV generation, uh, you know, MTV was on 24-7. Right, right. Um, so when you had a world premiere video, right, it was a big deal. Okay. It was special. It was. The family gathered around. It, it did. People gathered. There was no DVRs and pausing. It was an event. It was an event that you had to be there for. That's right. And talk about the juggernaut of this. Is it where, it's, like I said, MTV may have... What is this heavy stuff? And we got to play, you know, pop music. And I'm a huge fan, obviously, of Prince and Michael Jackson. So this isn't a knock on them, but this was the antithesis at the time to that, in in a sense of of of, of sound and scope, right? Okay. So suddenly, instead of rejecting it, okay, I'm not saying that that it's not a great album and and, and the Home Sweet Home is not a great video, but without that song being a ballad that everybody likes and can relate to, and forgive me, but Guys and people always want to be into the band that the girls want to fuck. It's just that's just how it is, right. you know. Like just by uh, what do you call it, voyeurism, or like how yes. you know. Um, but if you remember, do you remember long before T T uh, T R L with Carson Daly? Do you remember Dial MTV? I don't remember. Okay, you. I think you will if I, if I refresh your memory. Okay, like. Shout at the Devil was mine. Too Fast for Love was mine. But suddenly, like, my mom knew about Motley. It, uh, my yeah, my mother loved yes. Smoking in the Boys Room because it was a cover, and she remembers the original Brownsville station. You know, she loved Home Sweet Home. Motley Crue went from being my favorite band to being our household's favorite band. And that is largely responsible because my mother wasn't, yeah, you know, my mother was exposed to Home Sweet Home. She wasn't hearing it out of, out of my room. She wasn't no. borrowing my tapes. She saw it on MTV. Good point. Okay, because Absolutely. again, MTV was on twenty. It was a twenty-four hour channel. That was all that was on in my house. Okay, my I you know like Talking Heads say, I grew up in a house where the television was always on. Yeah. We didn't even turn it off when we went to bed. It was a it was a, a companion. So MTV had this dial-in request show called just that dial-in TV. And it's hard to think about a you know a music channel. This is, by the way, guys, this is back when MTV actually played music. I know it sounds like a cliche, <laughs> but yes, MTV. What you know it now it used to be this wonderful thing that played music videos all day long, and it was how yeah all day all night, and it was how we were introduced to everything we're talking about now. Okay, so all right. Having said that, was it now they made you part of it? It was an interactive thing where you could call in and kind of go. You, you were now voting. You were rooting. You were not only were we part of the gang, but we were showing our loyalty to the gang by by calling and voting. It's hard to imagine MTV getting behind a band like even a few years later. You couldn't imagine, and people kind of forget about the support that MTV had for Motley Crue. But Home Sweet Home was the number one video. For like a year. So much so where they finally said, okay, that's it. And they had to retire. It's it's one of the only videos, you know, TRL came up in the late 90s, but like it was the only video that was disqualified from competition because that's how much it owned it. That's how much it owned it. And and there's two things we have to talk about with the, uh, and, and, and I'll, I'll end when, with that section with a song, but there's two very, very important things. One is, again, like I said, I was there the day it came out with my friend Tommy, and uh, you were there with, with your friend Casey, was that probably my favorite Motley lyric. Now, again, this is going to sound, in hindsight, so 
funny and misogynistic and revisionist, but it is the greatest. We were talking about Iggy Pop earlier. Like, I don't know how many people can, in terms of just rawness and that shapes it of the, the, the sleaze of it. That's the word we haven't introduced to our vernacular was the sleaze That's of right. it. That's right. You can't you mention Motley Crue, especially those first two albums, without mentioning sleaze. Well, <laughs> we're talking about their third album now that opens with a song called City Boy Blues, which is kind of a, city, a silly title that the song might as well not exist. I don't know if they've ever, ever even played it live. But there is a lyric from that song that says... Cats in the alley, rats in my snakeskin boots. <laughs> so I take a swig of whiskey and jump into the, the saddle, saddle with, with you. <laughs> <laughs> that is the heaviest, greatest, most amazing fucking rock and roll lyric ever. It is. Okay. Again, yeah. You know, I'm sure it was probably Nikki who, who wrote these lyrics, but yeah, once again, clever. Clever songwriting. And then for you, okay, something else that's super duper important was, and when we talk about the Motley Crue uh, Home Sweet Home video, was that the very first time, even before I did, before we even met, that you saw Motley Crue, you saw them on that tour. Yes. Uh, And again, uh, can I give a shout out to Casey Bassett? Uh, you know, again, one of my friends uh, that I've, you know, before I met you, Roy, uh, you know, he, being at his house in the summertime, in, I, I lived at his house. Uh, you know, his, his mom was always supportive of, of the music we listened to. And, you know, at, at that time, 1985, uh, you know, I lived with my grandmother. Uh, you know, we, we had moved from Albuquerque living with my grandmother, you know, single mom. Um, so going, going to Casey's house was, it was like an, it was an escape for me and like the music was, that's right. And, you know, and Casey and I, you know, we breathed, you know, the, the same music when, when I remember staying at his house in the summer and, you know, his, his room was, there was no wall. There was no, you could not see paint. It was all pictures from ma- from rock magazines. Yes, that was the bedroom. That was yes. the bedroom for all of us. That's right. You, you know, know, going to Trader's Village on the weekend, <laughs> to pick up a, a, a you know a four foot uh, Motley Crue poster. Uh, but uh, we had a chance uh, to go see Motley Crue, uh, and uh, Casey's mom took us. I want to set it up, yeah. though, okay, for all of you out there that have seen that amazing Motley Cruise video to Home Sweet Home, we talked about this earlier, that if you weren't already a fan of Motley Crue, this video was designed to subliminally tr- just, in, it, it's amazing. It may seem silly, but all the slow motion shots and the poses, while you're watching it, there isn't anybody that didn't dream about not only being at a Motley Crue concert, but being at that Motley Crue concert. And my friend Chris right here has the bragging rights that he was actually Reunion Arena, 1985, Dallas, Texas. You and your friend Casey. Tell me about it. Um, And again, I I don't really remember much. I do remember. (laughs) (laughs) And not because you were a young guy. Just because I was so young. Um, But again, we were pretty far far back, uh, nosebleed. 
Um, but again, you know, it was the second show I'd ever been to uh, with Casey. Uh, we, we we saw Kiss uh, and Wasp, as a matter of fact. Um, but this was really special. You know, this was our this was our band, and uh, to see them live, um, it, it was something special. Oh, unbelievable! You know? And one one of your first shows too, right? And you were saying that's right, know? that's right. Um, so really, you know, and again, I didn't know. I didn't know how how important it was, or you know, to me, I'm just going to see. Like I said, I was going to see our gang. Yeah, you know. So you're meeting the gang for the first that, time. That, you, that's right. We corresponded, but now you were seeing the that's gang. That's right. Yeah. You know, speaking of correspondence, you know, we, you know, we got to talk about how you know we'll probably go into that uh, how we met. And that's yeah, that's next. That, of that's next. Um, but but yeah, it was it. it it's really truly special to, and even today, you know, as an adult, uh, bands that are very important to me that, that, that I really care about to see them for the first time, it, it, it's always it's something special, right? And then, but 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 how and how great was it that out of the first time you saw Motley, it was that show, yeah, where you know from the and from I, the I had I really, and I had no idea, right? Of you course, you, you can't claim yeah, that, but, but at right. the same time, but what what a, what a great thing that that yeah, that's looking real. back, yeah, it's 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 really special. It's very cool. Well, and so that segues not only into that, but also the next thing was that I didn't actually get to see them until the next tour, which was Girls, 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 a a yet another new look, a kind of a, a new different kind of sound. And uh, there's a stopgap in between there that we're going to really dive into, of course. Uh, but I wanted to segue and I wanted to talk about this for a second was with the most important thing of, of, for me is I have my own individual memories of Motley. You have your own individual memories of Motley. You have your memories of Motley with your friend Casey and me and my friend Tommy. Right. But for me, there is no Motley without you. Do you know what I mean? There right. is like I have those individual ones, but. I could not separate it. So I'm so excited and happy to be able to also, for those that know us, like, you know, they can't remember a time when we didn't know each other. I can't, right. you know, so to get a chance to tell that story and about how we met and what we bonded over um, was so the, the next year or actually two years later uh, in 87, Motley comes up with an album called Girls, Girls, Girls. And speaking of a gang, they really look probably the most like a gang, this time a motorcycle gang. They're on the album cover. And I remember it was a Hip Raider magazine that had the reveal photos. Yeah, yeah. And it was so exciting. Because, you know, this was an ACDC where every album they're going to wear a T-shirt and jeans. Yeah, yeah. You know, you kind of had an idea that what are we going to get with this album? Right, right. So it was very exciting. And and again, and, and... I miss that because now you know, you know the internet gives things away, and you had to you had to really wait for it and get the issue. And oh my god, remember yes. if you remember they had all gotten the same tattoo, right? And the pullout poster yes. was the side thing showing that they had that same like kind of like snake tattoo, right. and and they all they all have sleep tattoos now, so you couldn't imagine it. But it's like when we saw them earlier, when how very little tattoos Vince had, it was kind of fun to look at, but. Um, so for me, I wanted to set this up. Uh, was it okay? So they had come out with the album called Girls, 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 and they always kind of seemed like a gang. And this is way before the Bloods and the Crips and all that. Uh, when you think of a gang, you think of motorcycle gangs. It's only yes. you know Hell's Angels. Well, now our gang now looked like <laughs> the Hell's Angels. <laughs> they did. And everything was you know motorcycles, and I mean, even the song Girls, Girls, Girls. You hear. 
the very yeah. first thing you hear a a engine revving on a motorcycle. Right. And uh, and our only exposure to that was, of course, was Tommy in the uncensored video, which we're about to speak about. But I wanted to set this up. So you, of course, uh, grew up in Texas, and I lived in. Uh, I, I was born in in, uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And in the summer of 87, this was actually my second concert. Uh, shout out to, David, to my man, David Lee Roth, for the, 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 the magic of the Eat em and Smile Tour, summer of 86. Cinderella opened that show, by the way. Nice. Uh, so by 87, I'd been to one concert. Motley Crue was my life, and this is me meeting the gang for the first time. It was on the 4th of July, and we just had the 4th of July. Uh, it was the 4th of July, 1987, the Barton Coliseum in Little Rock, Arkansas, and, and it was kind of a twofer because show you how early this was in the tour white snake opened and this was not like the the white snake that was toiling around during the lean years they had just released the self-titled record it has all the hits on it that you still hear on the radio like here i go again and in the still of the night and is this love and all right. that that later on you know they went on to headline the arenas themselves but they they opened on that tour okay and I was seeing the gang for the first time. Now, we're trying to keep it positive. The first thing that occurred to me when I saw it, I'd only seen live music one time before. The first thing that occurred to me was, I can't believe that these magical beings that may as well, I might as well have been seeing Spider-Man up there or, <laughs> or, you know, they seemed like fictitious characters. And the second thing was, was I couldn't believe how bad Vince Neil sounded live. <laughs> uh, even as a teenager, I was kind of like is there something wrong with this microphone? Like, right. you know, and the third thing was, was how rowdy, cause I, you know, I, I'm still so innocent. Like, and there were, they were cussing on stage and there were people around me getting high. And I, so it took me out of the home sweet home video into reality. And that reality was sleazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And so, we uh, moved just a, uh, about a, about a month and a half later that summer. We moved to Texas, specifically Crowley, Texas, and uh, and so the very very first week of school, you remember this? Uh, see what nerds you and I were like, even though we were listening to Motley, was that they had open house, you know, where you have to, you know, you you know, go to school at night to meet the teacher and all that, and your mom took you and my yeah. mom took me because we're geeks. And we were some of the only people that were actually there, if you remember. remember I think this, it was this, just this, us. I, I believe yeah. it. I think, I think about it one other, other person that may have like left before it began. Right. But I, I remember it was Mrs. Lovell. Shout out to Mrs. Lovell. I, I, I don't know if she's still with us, but uh, um, Mrs. Lovell in uh, H.F. Stevens Middle School in Crowley, Texas. And it was you and your mom and, and then me and my mom. And I was... I think I might have been wearing. Yeah, I think you had to have been wearing a Molly Crew. I did something to I, signal you because I had got my prize beloved Motley shirt and I was wearing it. And it's weird to think about now because you could wear, in Arkansas, it was okay to wear concert shirts versus the hell that I went through, that we both went through with the dress code and Crowley right. seemed like it was like in the 1950s or something, you know? And I was wearing a, my, my prize Motley shirt because back in the day, going to the concert, getting the T-shirt was as important as seeing the show. If you didn't go to the concert, if you didn't get a shirt, you didn't – then why did you – like what – why did you go? Yeah, it's like, like a badge. Yeah. Or, uh. And so I was wearing it, and 
to kind of let me know that you spoke my language. I'd always had dreamed about being a part of the Motley Crue fan club. Talk about being a part of the gang. That that was official. Yes. Okay. It was called the Fiend Club. It was the Alistair, ironically, the Alistair Crowley, or the Alistair, based on Alistair Crowley, the Alistair Fiend. Fiend. It was called the Fiend Club. That's right. Because their mascot was Alistair Fiend. Okay. Right. And uh, and you had your membership card in your wallet. <laughs> and back then, remember the wallets had the little window for the, yes. for the pictures. And to get my attention, do you remember this? You had like, I don't know, you like did something. You dropped your wallet like on purpose though, <laughs> exposing like the uh, the wallet so I could see it. And it got my attention. And I looked down and I looked over at you and I, I couldn't believe it. Here was, I was actually seeing a member, a full-fledged official member right. of the Motley Crew fan club. And I may have still have had a uh, Motley Crue wallet. You know, the the, the Velcro yeah, uh, that's right. wallets were so popular. That's right. Oh, my right. God. You're and right. I had one. It was black, and it had the skull with the uh, the handcuffs going around the skull. skull. Right. right. Yeah. And and then and then you had yeah it was the, the you're right yes yeah, so not only did I have the wallet wow I I'd forgotten club. about that yeah I had the fiend club card to go along <laughs> with it like I said this was our gang and I was an official member you were and I was yes. I was meeting an official member of the band and I am proud 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 uh, of there is nothing that equals my pride that I'm so proud to say that come. Uh, you know, a year next month, a year from now next month, well, actually, I guess next month it'll be 29 years, but uh, this time next year we'll be celebrating 30 years wow. of that meeting. And I'm proud to say that 29 years later, look at us, man, we're still right. rocking, still together, still best friends, still brothers, and Absolutely. still listening to Motley Crue. Yep. And, uh, and, and the thing that we, that we bonded over uh, at that time was – specifically about Motley was, of course, our love for Too Fast for Love, our, you know, I was meeting a member of the gang. We were yeah. we were now a part of it, and you can't separate it. And I don't know how many acts out there, like if you're if you're a fan of, of, of uh, I don't know, I'm not trying to diss anybody and sound old here, but like if you're a Drake fan and you meet other Drake fans, does it, does it unite you the way Indeed. that Motley, you, does anybody do that? Does, no. If you're, a, if you're so. a fan of the band Shine Down or whatever that girl was telling us about, <laughs> like, right. does that does that unite you in some way? And again, like you said, I don't think that you have that anymore. Right. Okay. So specifically was that, and it's, it's so silly, but it's so great, was that in the stop gap between, they kind of put out some product between Theater of Pain in Girls, 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 as a lead-in, Motley Crue, also pioneering, uh, was one of the first to put out to take advantage of this new format, which was now home video. And Motley Crue put out the in the annals of our storytelling that we quote like scripture during those 29 years is the legendary and long out of print. You guys will have to go online to, to find this, is Motley Crue's uncensored now may sound basic may sound forgettable trust me it is 28 minutes which is we talked about this earlier it feels like two hours I and i don't mean that in a bad way like oh my god this thing drags no you live a lifetime in that 28 minutes and i'm proud to say that for the first time in many 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 years before we went on the air to get us ready for this 
my man Chris and I sat down to watch Motley Crue Uncensored. How did it make you feel seeing that? Well, again, you know, it, it it's very nostalgic. It brings it brings me back to you know being in your room or being in my room, and That's just, right. you would spend the night at my house, and we would play this tape over and over and over again over and over and what's funny is you know again you mentioned that the runtime for this is 28 30 minutes i never knew that until years later right you know watching this you know at that age it, it really felt like it was two out it might have been a two hour long yeah. film because you see so much you know you, you you see you know going to you know going to the take me to the top video to to ending the home sweet home right it's like it seems like an eternity, but you know, as you said, how many years was that? But only five. Only a five-year period that it's, we're watching. It's still getting my head around it, you know. Right. But as a young person, okay, two things. One, think about what it was like for them, because in that five years, Tommy went from being ages seventeen to twenty-two. That, that's you know, when you go from thirty-two to thirty-seven, it's a <laughs> it's a it's a blink of an eye. Right. But seventeen to twenty-two, that's that's three lifetimes. Okay. It is. There's that. They refer, while during the interview on Motley Crue Uncensored, um, while I guess it's probably 86, while the interview, they're referring to things that happened in 1981 like it happened in, like, 1881. Right. It's, like, I They were looking at that Take Me to the Top video like it would, like it had been 30 years since they'd seen that. Yeah, like, they... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And, and they were embarrassed. They were like, "Oh, do I have to watch this?" It was very, you know, very cringeworthy for them. And well, I can, I can understand that. Well, yeah, I guess anybody would have that perspective. But what I mean is, is it for them? It's like it made me feel like, man, I wish I was there at the beginning of my career. <laughs> right. Well, realizing that you are at the we beginning, were. we were. <laughs> I, I, I got, I, I owned Shadow the Devil in 1983. How was I not there at the beginning? You're, you're right. You know, but watching that, it made it look like that. You right. Know? But the but also the power of this is, is this: whenever you're a young person, especially that young, and you know, just a bunch of you know having a those Indian summers uh, of just you live in a world. It creates an environment. Motley Crue Uncensored. Now, I should say this: the reason why it's long out of print because I'm sure it's a probably a huge embarrassment to the band because it's this this cheesy, corny, staged. Uh, Wayne Isham's first uh, stuff, by the way, he's the one that directed, you know, uh, Home Sweet Home and uh, and Smoking in the Boys Room, and so they got him to to do this video, and and it's like these there's these street interviews uh, where they're clearly mic'd and clearly staged, but at that age, I didn't know that. No. I took it very seriously. Like when they go to Mix House and they, and he's they're trying to, I thought they were really trying to chase down the members of Motley Crue. Right. And maybe, and it's not done tongue in cheek. They maybe thought they were trying to get one over on you, <laughs> you know, or, or when I show the greatest thing in the world is when they, of course, you know, what do you identify with each member of the band? Uh, Nikki six tattoo. So let's go to a tattoo parlor. Right. Uh, they happen to catch Tommy riding his motorcycle down Ventura Boulevard. Okay. But for Vince, we go to, a whorehouse. <laughs> and of course, there's this like looking, seeing it now, okay, you you can clearly see that she's feigning, that she's been basically, you know, fucked into a coma and she doesn't know who you're, you're talking about. 
So the director barges in, right. and here comes Vince coming down the stairs before he hops into the to the limo with the, the jacuzzi, jacuzzi in the back. <laughs> with with a, a, a girl on each arm. Right. Know? It's excess, it's misogyny, but it's also innocence. And here's what I wanted to say was, was at the same time, and not because I want it to be, after watching that 30-minute video, I didn't look back on it and go, oh, God, this is terrible. How were we ever into this? Or blah, blah, blah. I was able to live that same lifetime. Now, that speaks largely to my my immaturity <laughs> or my ability to be able to retain the, the magic that I felt as a kid. I think so. But it also speaks to, I think, that, how, again, how it's paced. I never thought about that before until you mentioned that to me. Was you're right, because they take you from 81 throughout the, you know, the entire span of the band up to that point. But what it does is it creates an environment. Now, right now, you can watch something that's 30 minutes long or an hour long. I couldn't barely watch a YouTube video that's two minutes long, like two times in a row. But Motley Crue Uncensored created an environment that you were sad to no longer be living in when it ended. Right. And it seemed like it's only just now when we watched it, it was 28 minutes. Didn't it feel like we were, it was like two hours and again, not in a dragging bad way. It was just like you were living, a, a living something else. So, as a young person, I loved, and I, I miss being the kind of person that could watch something over and over again like that. Yeah. You know, and it's a mix. I don't know if it's really the you know credit to to the producer, um, but or, or is it the fascination with these personalities that we had? You know, yeah. we're we're getting you know uncensored. We are. Uh, you know, we're, we're front and center uh, with these interviews. Yes. You know, we're, we're getting to see these, the, you know, again, this gang that we're a part of, uh, you know, uh, we're getting to see their personal lives. For the know? first time, because right. I mean, we'd seen the videos, but in the That's videos, right. they're playing roles. Very good point. And then, and then for Home Sweet Home, we see it in live. But we're actually seeing where we think they live, at least. But we're actually seeing, right. like, we'd read interviews, but you're actually seeing, you know, like, they're... All the albums talk about this place, Hollywood, and and uh, yes, and, uh, good point. And now they're showing you Hollywood. Yeah, you're actually you're we're getting to see. We get to go into the tattoo parlor, and then you know there's Tommy in front of the porn theater, and then there's we're we're actually yeah, right down Sunset Strip talking about the Troubadour, the yeah. whiskey. We're actually, but, but we're actually going. He's not telling you. There's actual visual. We're actually riding alongside. Tommy on his motorcycle down Ventura Boulevard. We're, we're actually ch- chasing Nikki in his Corvette through the Hollywood Hills yeah. where he does the interview at the top. The yeah. and, and he shows you, uh, you know, and then of course there's Vince in the back of a limo in a jacuzzi with like 18 girls all naked and actually on Sunset, Sunset Strip in 1985. Yeah, it, it, it's all immortalized right there. You know, it's. But for me, there's 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 just something else is that it creates a, a taste and a flavor that I'm a member of the gang. I want to be a part of the gang, okay? And now somehow being in that, even though it's only thirty minutes, somehow nothing makes me feel more a part of the gang, even more so than. Having, if I even had the membership card, mm-hmm. being in that, watching that video while you're watching it, nothing makes me feel more a part of that game. 
I, I couldn't agree with you more. And then being and then sharing it with you and getting to share it for thirty, you know, for thirty some odd right. years, that almost thirty so, years. Yeah, that was what was so great about uncensored. Yeah, you know, you you get to see that that part that you you don't get on on you know on on your vinyl. Right, right. You get to see not not the not these these people that you know you think you know so well because you know them through music, but. We get to take a look at their personal lives, and so I implore you. Like I said, you, you know, if you if you didn't live it in 1985 like we did, you may find it silly. But if you're interested in Motley enough to listen to, to this this episode, uh, and you've never seen Motley Crue uncensored, you got to see it. It's so crucial, and I hope that it, it it'll it'll bring you something as much as it's brought to us. And and I can even remember because again, because that came out before you and I met, I can remember being bored and alone and uh and uh, but i had my motley crew uncensored thing whatever and i would just i'd watch it all day yeah and that speaks to also is like now you can kind of skip around and tivo or i'm sorry dvr stuff and whereas you know back then it was like i watched it and then i watched it again i watched <laughs> it and then i watched it again you know uh and then there's something great there i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna come back to but uh so in this last segment um, we have to move on here to the the final album of the 80s, uh, released in September of 89. So it just kind of caught the very end of it, was actually their most successful record, uh, because for this episode, like said, we're, we're just covering the 80s, and in part two, we're going to take you from, from you know, starting with the 90s and, and then beyond, uh, that we'll be bringing to you um, in, in part two. But... Uh, their very most popular record is Dr. Feelgood. Uh, you know, most albums are lucky to have two successful singles. Think about it. They had two from Shout at the Devil. They had two from Theater of Pain. They had two from Girls, Girls, Girls. Just to recap, Shout at the Devil had Looks to Kill and Too Young to Fall in Love. Okay? Theater of Pain had Home Sweet Home and Spoken in the Boys' Room. Mm-hmm. Of course, Girls, Girls, Girls had the title track and Wild Side. But Dr. Feelgood, I think it had like six or maybe seven singles and seven videos. And one of the reasons why that might seem surprising, because as much as we love Motley and as much as we couldn't be, we weren't, there were no two bigger Motley Crue fans in 1987 than you and I, by 1989, and not that we abandoned them or, or, or what else, but again, we were very young. From 87 to 89, Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax, the big four happened. Right. So we kind of, you know, we were still a member of the gang, but we had kind of, we were kind of cheating on them. We were, we, we kind of, we kind of right. joined a new gang. That's right. I mean, as much as I love Girls, 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 and, right. you know, I, again, I played that record quite a bit. Um, we were introduced to Master Puppets. That's right. That's Metallica's Master Puppets. That's right. And then Slayer's Rain and Blood. Right. Anthrax is Among the Living, Megadeth's Peace Cells, But Who's Bond. So, and then, and, and, and I'm sorry, but also the sound was even, because Girls, Girls, Girls was a pretty commercial record, but by the time we get to Dr. Feelgood, it is really commercial it sound. It is. Which is responsible for why it was so successful, kind of like... Metallica with their Black Album. You know, in a just world, Master of Puppets would have sold more copies of the Black Album. Just like that the most best, you know, like the most copies of any Motley record that sold should be Too Fast for Love. 
but it's Dr. Feelgood. In a just world, it would be too fast. You understand you see right. what I'm saying? But that commercialism and joining up with Bob Rock, who also produced the, the Black Album, you yes. see, see the parallels, you see what I'm yep. going for here? Absolutely. Okay, is, um, is why it was so popular and so successful. But those things, in the same way that it gave us reasons to leave the gang and stick with Slayer and Metallica... Okay, was the same reason what caused people to want to abandon the gang from Metallica during the the uh, the Black Album because it you know it, it seems exactly. nothing else matters. So when people talk about all Motley and, and Metallica, dude, the parallels are very 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 similar, and they were all happening at the exact same time, you know. And so uh, th- lots of singles. Obviously, the title track, Dr. Feelgood, and it's a good album, and it's a it great is. record, okay? But Dr. Feelgood, obviously, Kickstart My Heart, uh, Don't Go Away Mad. I really don't like that same old situation song, but they, I think it's like Vince's <laughs> favorite song that they played every time. Um, there's a song called Without You, a very syrupy, sally, uh, silly ballad. Uh, I think there's a song called Angel, I think. Uh, I had to pull it up. I think yeah, there might even be one. Yeah. There were like six or seven yes. singles. Every song was a single. And also, just like Metallica, who, because the Black Album was so popular, they were on tour for like t- almost three years and did 300 shows. Motley was on tour. for. Like, it ended up breaking up the band. If you remember, like Vince left the band after that, which we'll get yeah. into later. And they were on the same record label, right? Bob uh, Rock, Electra. Both on Electra. Yeah. Lots of parallels here. Yes. But that's 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 besides the point for now. Was what I wanted to talk about was that is it how look at how Motley started the decade of the eighties and look at how they ended it. They started it by being a completely original band that, like I said, take my fist and break down yes. walls. And they ended the eighties by being the most popular and successful rock band at that of all time. And of that year, when, you know, when they came to town on the, you know, for the girls, 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 whatever. And, and everything else, when they came for Dr. Feelgood, they were coming for multiple nights. You see what I'm saying? Right. It was the most successful thing. So, so think about that because we weren't as dialed in. I remember when Dr. Feelgood came out and I remember calling you and talking to you about it. Um, and but we were pretty much dismissive because right and, and i think the way i could put it is at that time when dr feelgood came out like i said when we talked about when uh you know too fast for love came out, this was our band yeah by the time dr feelgood came out and with all its singles all its videos motley crew was no longer my band yeah, we were we were longer. I remember we were kind of a member of the band. Like we were we were, but it's kind of like we're you know. And again, I, I hate this where you know you you love a band, nobody's heard of them. Yeah, you you want to share them, but you don't. <laughs> right. You the know, punk I, rock rubbery thing. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I don't want to share this band. Well, now my mom loves Motley Crue just as much as I do. Yeah, so I can't have that. But, yeah. So you know, again, yeah. Here, honey. Take rain and blood. Try that on for size, it's, and that is exactly you my need point. that rebel. So we're not yes, we're not to blame. Yeah, there, 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 it wasn't rebellious anymore. Um, it wasn't mine. They didn't speak to anymore. Um, again, I, I needed something that was new. Um, and again, I still at that young age, we still needed something that was aggressive, right, and, and raw. And 
That was not Dr. Feelgood. Well, we remember the family, but they went from being like our like like our brothers to being like kind of like our first cousins. You know what I, right. you know what I mean? Right. Like I, I remember being aware of it. And I remember hearing Dr. Feelgood on the radio. And I was at that point, we'd even had even if you remember, had even gone beyond uh, Metallica and Slater. I mean, we were listening to Anchor Watt and right. Destruction, Destruction, just the German Thrash. Really creator, just really trying right. to just push it as far as we could go. So if you know, when you're 15, almost 16 in 1989, and you know, when you're looking for the heaviest thing in the world, and then when you hear Dr. Feelgood. You know, you remember how I used to do that little jazz hands thing right. I used to do. Um, it doesn't quite speak to you, but I, I want to reclaim it in a sense because it is a great record. It, it is. It, you, you cannot know, deny how great the album is. It really is. And, 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 and you would think like, you know, okay, when is the, you know, because they're the only band that survived. The, the reason why Motley Crue ended their career with three nights at the Staples Center that were sold out and on top and and a a tour that grows several hundred million dollars. Okay, I want to say it's too fast for love, and you can say that it's you know the, the cultivation of too fast shout theater and girls, girls, girls. But the reason why thirty years later, it's because of Doctor Feelgood, man. The, yes, the, you're right. The people that you know, as much as we want to think that while we were at those reunion shows, which we're going to get into later, we want to think that the reason that when they played. We'll get into later the songs that you and I wanted to hear. We want to think that everyone's going, oh my god! But dude, when they play louder than hell, that was bathroom break for everybody but you and I. For That's watching, right. but you and I. That's right. So it is Doctor Feelgood that where they ended that era on top. They survived, you know, for the most part. Uh, like you know, we'll get into the whole like surviving the grunge thing later. But uh, but the reason why they were able to reclaim it was less about. You know, nostalgia as well. But the reason why they weren't doing it at the county fair, they were doing it is because of the strength of albums like Dr. Feelgood, you know. And so as much as, as we had kind of had kind of left the gang a little bit and we're kind of cheating on them with with Mustaine and and uh, and, uh, <laughs> and and all that. But uh, but the main thing is this is that uh, and this is what I want to say for now um, is that we uh Oh, I wanted to say that. Well, you know, also, you know, kickstart my heart on the, you know, Dr. Feelgood record has this great breakdown. Every time I hear, I always wait for it. Uh, you know, the part where he says, you know, when we started this, this band, band, all I needed, we needed was, was a laugh. laugh. Years gone, gone by. I say we kick some ass. And there you go. And it always kind of touches me because that means that if they kicked ass, we were we, a member of the group of the gang. Right. We, we kicked ass. And that, that, that's such a great point. And it, it, yeah, it means a lot. It is a very special moment. It is. And But like I said, when Enduring Uncensored, when he's talking about stuff that only happened five years ago, it was like it was 30 years ago when he goes, you know, years gone by, right. I say we kicked some ass. They were a band for less than 10 years. <laughs> At that point, they've yeah. been a band for eight years. But does that speak to how hard and fast they lived? Did it seem like 30 years to them? Probably so. I, I, I guarantee you. For us, ten years. For them, those ten years, it probably did seem like thirty. Yeah, and then they were actually a band for thirty-five. So it must have. Yeah. And and so we're very excited to. Uh, so just tell me, tell me that what you think about when you hear that breakdown. I mean, you hear it on the radio. Does it? 
Tell me how it affects yeah, you. Yeah, again, when I hear, and again, it's one of those uh, moments proud where, moments. yeah, you're very proud, you know, and it, it, it was very uh, smart, and it was very, again, genius, lyrically. Um, but because, genuine. It wasn't right. calculated at all. And that's, it, it wasn't, and, and that's the thing is, you know, being a fan of Motley Crue, that's one of those moments that you can always be proud of. Yeah, but that's what I'm trying to say was, you know, the thing that we've been doing here was that we're a member of the gang. So if all these years gone by and they've kicked some ass, that means we, we kicked have. some ass. And I'm proud to say that we have kicked ass. We have. As friends, <laughs> uh, as brothers, uh, and having Motley Crue as our soundtrack. So uh, we're going to end it there. Uh, I want to thank everybody so much for joining us this week. Chris, I can't thank you enough for being here. I, I couldn't tell this story without you. I wouldn't tell this story without you. So this actual episode wouldn't even wouldn't exist without you because I wouldn't have would have no interest in telling it without you. Well, thank you for having me. And again, it's been really special. It's been really great to actually. I know that we you know we we've listened to these albums over the years, but to actually sit down and give it the attention. Yes, and just discuss this band and these albums that, that meant so much to us in our youth. It's, in in it's this really way, you know, because yes. we talk about it all the time. You know, either you know for granted or not for granted, but to actually to to, to Make it the focus. It's actually to have a day where all we have to do today is talk about Motley Crue. <laughs> what an amazing thing it that is. It's great. So, and and what motivates that is because, like, at the end of Uncensored, where, and this is what I say to all listeners out there, is that this episode uh, is dedicated to the young and to the young at heart. And it's with that spirit that allows us to have a day like today where we, all we have to do is talk about Motley Crue. So, I want to inspire everybody out there to spend a day listening to just Motley or your favorite band and talk about it uh, and have a great time. We're going to come back with part two uh, next week where we're going to cover all the stuff post nineties. We're going to get into the book, the dirt. We're going to get into the, to the, the lean years, the nineties. We're going to get into the final tour. We're going to get into the movie. Lots and lots of great stuff. Uh, again, go to uh, iTunes, type in tricky kid radio. And just click the subscribe button. You're a subscriber, Chris, aren't you? Yes. Tell them how to tell them how, how they do it. Tell uh, them. You go to trickykid.com and you uh, subscribe there. Yeah, you can, or you can go to iTunes and subscribe there. Or you, again, if you're a non iTunes uh, user, you can go to like you said, the trickykid.com. But it's tricky hyphen. There's t r i c k y hyphen k i d dot com, uh, and you can stream it there if you're not an iTunes user. But the best thing to do is, or you can just go on to, to Facebook, type in Tricky Kid Radio. Uh, and uh, it'll come up and you can like the page and get lots and lots of updates because we really want you to come back. Come back and join us. You're going to come back, for obviously, for part two. I couldn't tell this story without you. So once again, uh, we dedicate this episode and the next one and, and, and all the ones after that. Uh, we want to thank Motley Crue for so many great years of memories. Uh, and again, this is dedicated to the young and the young at heart. So we're going to leave you with the song On With The Show, which actually ends the Too Fast for Love record, and ends our beloved Motley Crue Uncensored. Uh, so for my co-host, Chris Todd, I'm Roy Turner, and uh, we'll see you next week.